Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. We are continuing a series this morning. Uh, this week and next, we'll finish up in this letter to the Ephesians. Uh, and so we're in chapters 5. We're going to go into chapter 6 this morning. It is a long passage. I'm just warning you before we start to read. Uh, if you really crave, and I wish we had time to get into more detail because there's lots of good instruction for us here. If you crave that, as you see, we're going to talk about husbands and wives, children and parents, masters and, and servants. If you really are thinking, why are we trying to do all of that at once? We had some scheduling things here. Uh, the other churches in our network, they took those each uh, week by week. Pray for Bud Daniel. Bud Daniel's preaching his second sermon of his life. He grew up in our church. Uh, Tim Rice, the pastor of Trinity, gave him the, the masters and servants text to preach this morning. He did him dirty. That's just doing a young guy dirty. Uh, so go and listen to Bud's sermon, and you can listen to all those sermons. But for us, we're going to take all of them all in one chunk. And here's my rationale. Not only was it scheduling, but I think, it's a, I think it's a good way to do it because here's what I want to say to you before we read. As we think about those different relational dynamics, so much of our society now, so much of what we're after, we really come to the issues of marriage and parenting and so forth, and we're looking for technique. We want technique. We want somebody to tell us what are the strategies and what are the things that I need to do. Paul seems much more interested here. He says, what you need is not so much technique. What you need is the right heart. What you need more than anything else is to become the right kind of person as you try to navigate all of those dynamics. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning as we look at the larger picture of this text. So if you want to start and follow along with me, we're going to begin in chapter 5, verse 18. We're going to read all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, because it really is one section and there's no, no way to break it up. And so bear with me as I read this long passage of scripture to you. Okay, hear God's word. Paul writes, Do not get drunk on wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, husbands, if you just ribbed your wife with your elbow, now it's your turn. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. For he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, is, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment, with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours 
is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Uh, This is God's word. Say with me. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Okay, lots, lots to do here, all right? Let's remind ourselves of where we are. Paul is writing uh, to the Ephesians here to remind them and to, uh, to remind us that the gospel is God's, the gospel of God's grace to us, I should say, is the power of God. It is good news that is so wonderful, that is so amazing, that you cannot believe it and not be changed by it in believing it. There is such depth to it that we are always b- believing more and more, always gaining new insights, and so always becoming more and more the type of people, the type of community that Paul is laboring to describe here at the end of Ephesians. One other thing before we get to the main bulk of the text. The challenge, or excuse me, the change that the gospel brings, this power of God coming into your life, is not just outward. It doesn't just touch your behavior. What Paul claims, and what all of the scripture claims, is that it goes all the way down into the fear and pride and anxiety and self-centeredness that is underneath all of our behavior. And it doesn't just demand outward conformity to a set of rules, but glad, joyful obedience you see here from the heart uh, in obedience to God. And perhaps nowhere is that radical kind of inward reorientation of your whole life in light of the good news of Jesus, perhaps nowhere is it more evident in this one single word we see here in verse 21, submit. Now here's my question. How do you react to that word? Pay attention to your physical response when I read it again in just a minute. Does your jaw clench? Does does it create stress? Can you feel your body releasing the hormones to prepare for fight or flight response, right? When you you hear, Paul says to us in verse 21 that we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because for many, that may be triggering. But nevertheless, for Paul, it is the posture of faith as it expresses itself in love. It is an unavoidable consequence of believing the truth about Jesus Christ. As Charles Simeon put it, Christians grow downwards. Christians grow downwards. And so let's, let's just, that's really, we're going to really be focused on verse 21. We really want to hone in on verse 21 and then, the, and then the implications and applications that Paul makes for all of these different relationships that we uh, experience, these roles that we play. But verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does that mean, number one? Why is it so hard, number two? What is unique? What is uniquely Christian about what Paul is saying to us here? What's, what's unique about the Christian approach to that idea of submission? And lastly, how do you do it? Because it is hard. It's unavoidable, but it's hard, and so how do you do it? Okay, those four things as we walk through this text. So first, look there, verse 21 again, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's begin by talking about the language itself first. That word submit there, if you circle it in your Bible or however you want to highlight it there, it's a compound word. It's a verb that describes an assignment, a placement, uh, an appointment. That's what the word means. But then it has this, this preposition that's attached as a prefix. And so the verb means assignment, placement, appointment, the prefix is, is just the word hypo, and in English we use that designation hypo to describe something that is measured under the normal range. So hypotension is low blood pressure, right? Hypertension, high blood pressure. So you put those two things together, that idea of hypo and then assignment, 
And here's what Paul's saying, that in all of our dealings with one another, we are not to stand over one another, but instead we come under. God has assigned us to the low place in regards to one another. Now, that's the Greek, but think of the word in English, submission, right? There again, you have a word and a prefix, submission. So you make it your mission to serve somebody else's mission. Patrick referred to Philippians chapter 2. In humility, you count others more significant than yourselves and look out for their interests ahead of your own. But the natural way to do relationships is to use other people to bolster your own self and to avoid having them use you that way for their own purposes. So you assert yourself. You take advantage of them for your personal mission. But here, Paul says, no, this is a completely... Uh, different trajectory of life. Here, instead of doing that, you submit to one another. You put the other person's good, their goals, their dreams, their desires ahead of your own because you love them. You come underneath to support them, to cheer for them, and then to use whatever resources and strength you have to help them. You serve them, not yourself. Okay, that's what this word means. Now, one other thing. As I said, it's a verb, but it's actually... It's actually, as it's constructed, it, it actually, because of the prefix attached to it, it becomes a participle. And a participle, I, that's just getting into the weeds a little bit, but here's what I want. It's possible to make too much of this, but here's what I want to say. In other words, this is not a command. Paul is not commanding us here. He's describing us. And I think that's an important point to make. This is not a command. It's a description here of a certain kind of person. So when Paul says be submitting to one another. He's not mandating concrete actions. He's describing an attitude. It's not, you should do this. It's, you should be like this in everything and always towards one another. You should be this kind of person. A participle is not the main verb in the sentence. That's what distinguishes it. It modifies the main verb. It, it describes the main verb. So what is the main verb? And this, was, this caught me by surprise because I intended to start our reading just there in verse 21, but really you have to go back in the sentence as it's constructed all the way back to verse 18. And there Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. That's the main verb. That's the main idea Paul is unpacking for us here. He says, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. But if you're full of the Spirit, he goes on to describe, then you will first, there will be a melody of love that will be on repeat in your heart, he says. Have you ever had a, have you ever gotten a song stuck in your mind? Isn't that the worst? Especially if it's some like awful, you know, terrible but catchy song. And you go around the rest of the day kind of, mm -hmm, oh, I got to get it. How do I get this out of my mind? Paul's saying just like that, just like that, there'll be this song of love for God that's on repeat. And you'll be giving thanks to God always and for everything. And as a result, he says, Filled with the Spirit, song of love on repeat in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, submitting to one another. Do you see that? So Paul's describing a spirit-filled life. That's the spirit-filled life. Thanksgiving as an act of love for God. Submission as an act of love for neighbor. And so Paul is describing a submissive person. Not just the actions, not just the duty, but the kind of person because that is what we're talking about, a person that is content to love and serve, that doesn't have to be in charge, that may have a particular low opinion of their opinion, and so have no problem taking the low place. And there's a long history in Reformed Christianity of applying the fifth commandment, which he quotes later on down there, honor your father and your mother, to not just the 
parent-child relationship to all power dynamics. And it's really, really quite brilliant if you read the, the larger catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It describes what we owe to, to one another and how we sin against one another in all these categories as inferiors and superiors and equals. And it goes through all the dynamics of those. And as inferiors, it says that we are to honor those who are over us, to obey them, to recognize how hard leadership is and pray for them and defend them and defend their faith and support them because it's so easy to become envious and contemptuous of people who are in positions of authority or leadership over us. But as superiors, we are to correct, excuse me, to love and to bless those we lead and countenance them. I love the language of the confession there. Commend them, correct them, to be careful as we lead, as we're in positions of authority, to not seek our own glory or ease or profit or pleasure at anyone else's expense. And then as equals, where there's equal footing, we are to regard one another and honor one another and rejoice in each other's gifts and celebrate all successes as if they were our own and to avoid turning everything into a competition and trying to win. These are the kinds of, these are the kinds of duties and the ways we sin against one another by, by not heeding the, the advice of Paul here to submit and be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, this is an expectation of the church. If you're a member of this church or any church in our denomination, you take vows, and one of those vows is that you would be submitting to the authority and discipline of the church. Because in a time when we belong to institutions performatively, when we belong to institutions, that is, to further our own personal brand or as an expression of our own personal mission, the clear expectation is that church is something different, something that you have to come under, that church is a place where you don't, you and I, we don't get to make demands upon the church, but the church gets to make demands upon us. And that that's a good thing for our hearts, to belong to something where that is the clear dynamic. Because with every other institution, you say, you know, I've got this thing going and I'm going to belong here because it helps me reach these other goals. It's a part of the life that I'm crafting for myself. But with church, with, the, with belonging to this people, you expect something different. You expect to allow yourself to be being shaped by shared beliefs and values and practices that might and probably will confront your own personal goals. And when they do, what Paul is saying here is the right thing to do is to put those other things aside and come under. Because your heart needs, your heart needs as much practice as possible in doing that. Because we read this word, we see very clearly what it means, but we also see how hard it is. So secondly, back to verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why is that so hard? Why does it land on us the way that it does? And I have to be short here, so I'll just get right to the point. We're sinful. Right? You with me? That's the answer. Why is this hard? It's hard because we're sinful, and the root of all sin is pride. Pride is self-exalting, self-promoting, self-justifying. Pride is also self-deprecating, self-demoting, self-loathing. It is the preeminence of self in whatever form it takes. And the great, greatest command is to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. But pride is putting self before God. It's loving self with all of your heart soul and mind and strength. And if submission as neighbor love is to put others first, pride is the me first attitude. It's self-preoccupation, self-fixation. And as a result, we are, if we were honest for just a minute with one another this morning, we would confess that we are not content to be under anyone else, not even God. As his image bearers, we were made to create, 
we were created to rule and have dominion in his name, to make his mission our mission, first among all living things, second only to God, and yet second was not good enough. This is what our story tells us. Sin is the desire to rule over God, to replace him, to launch him from his rightful place and perpetually cause him to orbit around our own selfish ambitions and desires, and then in all things to live to serve ourselves and protect our place at the center of our existence. And so, because we all come into the world and we all cultivate as we go through, through our life in this world this kind of pride in all of our relationships, what happens? How does this affect the way we relate to one another? In all of our relationships, because of that pride that is so latent in every single one of us, the first thing we do whenever we come up against another a role or a relationship is we figure out the hierarchy. That's what we're most interested in. Okay, what's the hierarchy here? Because sinfully, we know uh, no other way to relate to one another. So what we determine who's number one and who's number two. And if we are number one, then we immediately begin to do whatever we must to maintain our status. And if we are not number one, as we determine things, if we find ourselves further down the pecking order, then we do whatever we must to supplant whoever is. And sometimes by directly challenging them, but if that does not work, or if we are too ashamed to be so public with our disdain, then we pout. And pouting looks like asserting ourselves subtly with envy and contempt and withholding support and affection and rooting against people instead of cheering for them and so forth, right? We do this, and it's all rooted in our pride. So submitting to one another, this, this simple phrase here in verse 21 is a direct challenge to all of that. We sinfully have no palate for it. Our pride won't allow it. We grind our teeth at the concept, and I hope we can just be honest about that this morning, not, and not kind of super spiritualize our lives and, and, and happy ourselves up at the thought that we might be different. This is true of every single one of us. And it's why Augustine said that the very first lesson of Christianity is humility. But guess what the second lesson is? Humility. And guess what the third is? Humility. Pride says, me first, then you. Right? Submission. A person who is submitted says, you first, and then me. Okay, so second, secondly, we see this is hard, and it's hard because of our pride. But thirdly, before we get to the power to, that can break that pride... I want you to see that there's, there is something very enlightening here about what is unique about the, view, the Christian view of submission, about the way Paul works this out, because I, I want us to know what we're really up against here. So and the third point would be that, just what is unique about the way Paul frames this here? And here's what I would say to you. Uh, what, is, what is fascinating, what, have, what would have rocked the known world as Paul wrote this to the Ephesians is that as he talks about submission, it's never one way. It's always reciprocal. It's always reciprocated. There's never, in every relationship, there's never one person who's meant to submit to some other person who, who God does not demand also submit. You see that? I mean, that is what comes out in this text, which is why it's so important to focus on verse 21. And it's fascinating. If you listen to evangelicals, evangelicals love to start this passage with verse 22. We love to skip right to verse 22. When in fact, the language won't even let us do that. If verse 21 gets lost, you could go right to wives, submit to your husbands. And forget that verse 21 also means that husbands must be submitting to their wives. Because what does verse 21 say? Submit to one another. 
And in each case, Paul addresses both parties, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, because everybody submits. There's never one party submitting to another party who's not submitted. Now, they may not be submitted in the same way. They may not be submitted to one another exactly in the same function, but that is due to a particular role that they play in the relationship, not to any kind of hierarchy. I mean, even the way the sentence, sentences are constructed here, the language doesn't even allow us to do that. In verse 22, this is important to see, the word for submit is actually not even in verse 22. The word actually occurs in verse 21. And so the way you should read it is like this. You should read verse 21, submit to one another, and then in verse 22, that word's not even there. Now, it's repeated because of the implication, but it really should read, submit to one another, verse 21, wives to your husbands, verse 22. That's what it basically says. So you can't read verse 22 without reading verse 21. You can't make sense of verse 22 without, without, even, without including verse 21. You can't use the word submit in verse 22 and apply it to women without pulling it from the larger meaning that's found in verse 21. Does that make sense? I'm laboring. I'm laboring here for this. Because we need a correction, I think, here. So, having said that, let's look at each. And again, this is going to be very unsatisfactory probably to you. You can, you can listen to the pastors from our other churches if you want some more detail here. But let's look. Beginning in verse 21. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, it's very clear, very straightforward. In a marriage, the wife is to acknowledge and honor the leadership of her husband's. The synonym there for a wife's submission to her husband is down in verse is down at the very end of the, verse 32. If you see where it says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the synonym for submit is respect, and it's a strong word. I was actually surprised. It is, it's the word phobia, fear. And in the King James Version, version it is reverence. A wife should reverence her husband. She should hold him in high regard, and that grates against so much of our cultural conditioning, but there it is. It's there. We have to, I mean, we have to deal with it. It's there. Uh, but as I've said, it's not a one-way street, okay? Because as soon as Paul addresses wives, he turns to address husbands. And in fact, what is striking to me is that he has much more to say to the husbands than he does to the wives. Only three verses about the wife, wives and their responsibilities to the husband. Eight verses addressed to the husbands about their responsibilities to their wives. So you gotta, so you gotta balance this out. The wife should not respect her husband just because he's a man or he's a husband, as if that in itself makes him great. The wife respects her husband because of the way he has postured himself toward her, laying down his life for her, putting her own needs and wants ahead of his own. Paul is describing a wife awed by her husband's sacrificial love as it is an echo of the love of God for her in Christ. The husband, though, submits too. And the synonym for his submission is the word love. Three times Paul commands this. Husband, love your wives. Verse 25, verse 28, and then again in verse uh, 33. You see verse 33, let each one of you love your wives as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So his, his word is love. Twice we're told, where it's expanded upon, that the, the husband's love for his wife should mirror Christ's love for the church, verse 25, verse 29. And so here's a description of Christ's love. Jesus did not consider his own position. He didn't grasp for power or control. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself through obedience, dying on a cross. And here's what that means, that both the wife and the husband take up a cross and follow Jesus in their marriage. Verse 
You with me? The wife, by denying herself and honoring her husband's leadership role in marriage, the husband, by denying himself and living towards his wife in all things with dying love, forsaking all other loyalties, holding fast to her, cherishing her above all other earthly attachments. But both of them are called, see, marriage only works when two people are racing one another to the low place. Secondly, oh, I'm so dissatisfied with having to move on from that. But secondly, we don't want to be here all day. Children and parents. And so here in verse 1 of chapter 6, he transitions. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. Again, straightforward. Children should be submitting to the authority and the wisdom of their parents. And the synonym for their submission is verse 1, the word obey. But here's really important. Kids, listen. That word, obey there, it means to listen with, with that same prefix attached, hypo, to listen under. That is your job, kids, as, as, as it relates to your parents, that you are to be listening under. It means, kids, listen to them. Children, listen to your parents because they're smarter than you. Hopefully. They're wiser than you. They've lived a little bit more life than you. They've seen things that you've not. And their heart for you is greater than your heart for them. So obey your parents. It says that that is the right way for you to live. Do you see that? For this is right. That word means it works. It works. This is the way it works. For you to have the happiness and safety and comfort that you need to grow up until you have the maturity and the wisdom to make decisions for yourself, you should joyfully, gladly, eagerly listen to your parents, sit at their feet and Beg of them that they would instruct you. And all the parents said, amen, yeah, right? Be eager, be eager to listen for their advice and to obey them. And I use the word joyfully because you can obey resentfully. And that's a little bit better than outright disobedience. I'll take it sometimes, but not much, not really. Paul quotes the fifth commandment here. Do you see that verse 2? Honor your father and mother. Honor, respect. The words uh, that you treat, uh, the word means that you treat your parents as precious, that you live um, correctly valuing and appreciating them. And then you see that parenthetical statement that the fifth commandment contains a promise, that there's something really, here's what, there's something really special about this particular command. God attaches a promise to it. In both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, he singles it out. It's the only one of the ten where there's a promise. He says, it will go well with you. Which means, when you disobey your parents, it will not go well with you. So listen, if you're here, if you're in the room, and even if you're an older child, but still a child of your parents, please hear me. Please, please take to heart what I'm saying. Don't be stubborn. Obey your parents. Listen to them. Love them. Honor them. Because it's the right thing to do so that it may go well with you. But there's also a sense. Don't think your parents are off the hook, kids. Because there's also a sense in which parents are to be submitting to their kids. And it's by not being overly authoritarian and demanding. And the synonym for their submission is just the word encourage. Now, the word's not there, but it comes out negatively in verse 4. Where it says fathers. So the responsibility of children is to, is to Listen under their parents. The responsibility of parents is to make sure they're not provoking their children to anger. And that word provoke is a really interesting word. It, it's a, it's, I'm just going to say it to you. It's para orgizo. 
Uh, like parakaleo, you know that word for the Holy Spirit? Parakaleo, you come alongside to encourage with kindness and words. But in this instance, this word means you come alongside and you kind of, you just walk alongside wherever your kid's going. You just poke and you poke and you irritate with demands and critical words until you take their heart away and you discourage them towards any kinds of obedience. Some translators say, do not exasperate your children. And a parent can exasperate their children by being too demanding, by being too exacting, by having too many rules, by having too high of expectations. And so in some ways, parents, the text here is saying that we are called to be submitting ourselves to our children in our parenting by parenting them from love and not just authority. By being patient and understanding and maintaining a a softness and an emotional connection. That's so important, even as we instruct and correct and discipline them. And that's hard. It's so hard, it's a lot less messy to just bosh your kids around. It takes a lot less energy. But the text here is telling us something about the kind of parenting in which kids thrive. Ray Ortland, uh, in, in uh, something I read this week, said, he said, no one is helped by being scolded. So parents and children, third, slaves and masters. Now, what in the world does that mean, right? And if you're reading from a Bible, which I would hope that you should be, bring your Bible to church. But if you're reading from a Bible, you'll notice there's a footnote there. And it describes what Paul means by slaves, which refer to bond servants or a person who has willingly entered into servitude because of financial hardship or some other kind of vulnerability. They would work for pay. And eventually they'd pay off whatever the debt was to you know, bring them into servitude and they would be free. So they'd pay off their freedom. Now, an application for today would be any arrangement in work or citizenship where there's a clear obligation from inferior to superior. And so he says, verses 5 through 7, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill. Now, those are astounding verses. And again there, the synonym for, for submission is obey, but a certain kind of obedience, sincere from the heart with goodwill. And then I'll just say before we move on, notice again, this is not one way because Paul does not merely address servants. He turns to the masters and he says, look, verse 9, this is astounding to me. He says, masters, do the same to them. So immediately you see those in authority are held to the same exact standard. They don't get to say, you have to do this for me, but I don't have to do it for you. The same thing is expected of them. They, they would be submitting to those under them because they are servants too. The master and the servant are both servants to the same master. And God, we're told, shows no partiality. So rank in relationships, at work, in society, rank is just function. It is an expression of God's favor. So masters should be kind, not heavy-handed, and not demanding. And so you see, you see how Paul, Paul does this. So he, he addresses all the different parties. He, he takes care of all the different power dynamics. And he says the way Christianity deals with all those hierarchies and power dynamics is he just calls upon everybody. Nobody's an exempt. Everybody is under the obligation of verse 21 of chapter 5 to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so if that's true, then lastly, let's just finish with how do you do it? How do you do this then? Where does the power for it come from? And Paul's been telling us all along. Walk back through the text with me. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. You say it. As to the Lord. Don't be afraid to talk in church. Come on now. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Children, obey your parents, verse 1 of chapter 6, in the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ, doing the will of God as to the Lord, not to man. Masters, do the same to them, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So in each case, the relationship to the other person is determined by your relationship with God. A wife submits to her husband as an act of submission to God himself. Husbands love their wives as, as they do themselves, uh, as they've been loved by God. Children obey God, obey God by obeying their parents. They f- fail to honor God by disobeying their parents. Parents should not exasperate their kids because God is not exasperated. And he's not exasperating. He's gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we can sum all of that up by going back one last time to chapter 5, verse 21. Put your eyes on it one last time and see where he says, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is what all of the rest of that is describing. Reverence for Jesus, who though he was God, did not hold on to his position of authority, but made himself nothing and became a servant. He humbled himself by coming into the world to live a life of obedience, loving God with all his heart and soul and strength and loving his neighbor ahead of himself The supreme act of his love being the cross where he died as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He, we're just read, he did not come to be served as it should have been, but to serve and to lay his life down for his people. The most high God becoming the most low. And Paul wants us, he means for us to contemplate that central truth of Christianity and to stand before it in holy awe. I mean, who has ever heard of such a thing? There is no other God like that. There's no, there's no other claim of any other religion in all the world that the world has ever known that claims such things to be true of God. And in Jan Martel's Life of P, uh, it's a book that he, he, he wrote, it became a movie. Uh, the lead character is a, a religious young boy in India, and it chronicles his journey through a series of conversions experience. He's a very religious boy. Uh, first, he converted to Hinduism, and then later he converts to Judaism, away from Hinduism, and then eventually he converts to Christianity, he becomes a Christian. He, he uh, met with a Catholic priest who would talk with him about Jesus and answers questions, and he, it, it's, a, it's a marvelous account. At first, the idea of Christianity was confounding to him. He says this, he says, what a downright weird story. This is what he said about Christianity, that God should put up with adversity I can understand. The gods of Hinduism face their fair share of thieves and bullies, but humiliation? Death? I could not imagine Lord Krishna consenting to being stripped naked and whipped, mocked, and to top it all off, crucified. Why? Love. That's what Father Martin's answer was. And then he described, he keeps having these conversations with this priest. He describes the gods of the other religions. He says, God, they are God as God should be, with shine and power and might, such as can rescue and save and put down evil. But this son... On the other hand, who goes hungry, who suffers, who gets tired, who is sad and anxious and heckled and harassed, what kind of God is that? What is there to inspire in this son? Guess what the priest's answer was? Love. And that is the answer over and over again. He keeps asking questions and the priest just keeps explaining by saying, this God, the God of Christianity is different from any other God you'll meet because at the core, he is a God of love and eventually the boy becomes a Christian because The God he came to know in Jesus was so unlike anything else he came across in all of his studies. He said, I couldn't get him out of my head. I couldn't stop thinking about him, and eventually I could not turn away from him. The psalmist sang this. He said, if you, O Lord, marked iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. The reverence for Christ 
that can fuel our submitting to one another comes from being shaken by the greatness and the goodness of God side by side. His greatness, his holiness, his wrath against sin, his righteous indignation, but at the same time, his goodness, his humility, and his love. He is not safe, but he is good. Now, here's the thing. Here is the basic gospel truth. If God counts sin, we're dead, right? Game over. But here's the good news. God does not count sin. He does not count our sins. Jesus died for our sins on the cross so that we could be righteous before God. And it's a gift. It's all grace, which means there is no hierarchy. We're all on the same footing. Power dynamics is really a struggle for righteousness. But if righteousness is by faith, then it doesn't matter who's number one and who's number two. Do you you get it? It doesn't matter who's in what role or who's ahead of who or who's above who. If you're contenting your heart in God's love for you and if you're convinced that his love has nothing to do with your status or, or your performance, then you don't have to be achieving. You don't have to be winning. There will be a new power, a new motivation at work in your life allowing you to obey this verse here in verse 21. So if not power, what? We'll go all the way back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. And notice there, the connection between gratitude and submission, between grace and humility. If life is truly all gift, if the good things and the bad things all originate from God's great heart for you and me, if you believe that your future is in good hands, then do you see what that does? Then you don't have to throw your weight around and make things happen. You don't have to be the author of all of the good things in your marriage for your kids. You can just receive You can content yourself in whatever circumstances. You can submit yourself to whatever role you've been assigned and believe that God will meet you there in his love and fill your life with beautiful, wonderful things. I mean, just look at the way he's loved you already in Jesus Christ. It's just like the hymnist said, Jesus, omnipotent to save, exalted prince of grace, light, life, and love thou dost bestow on men of vilest race. The heart of steel to thee must yield, the adamant give way. The stoutest rebel bow and kneel and own thy sovereign sway. That's what I pray happens in our hearts this morning. Would you pray that with me? Let's pray together. Before your great love, Lord Jesus, we pray that these hard hearts of ours would give way. Before your marvelous, awe-inspiring humility, we pray that these stony places in our lives would yield, that we would bow, kneel before you, say, have your way with us, not because we grit ourselves to it, but because of awe and reverence and wonder at the great love that you've shown us, Lord Jesus. What a Savior. Who else among the gods is like you? And so Holy Spirit, come in these last moments that we have to be together and remind us uh, that we can meet you in the scary places of our lives. We can meet you at the bottom. We can meet you in the middle of our own deaths in love for others because you're a God of resurrection. We can meet you in the desert places because you're a God who can take, take the desert and turn it into a garden. And so as we sing, fill our hearts with hope at that place and then empower us to go and live as you've commanded us here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Listen, it's hard to know what the details of this week might be for you, but here's the thing that you can be sure of, uh, that if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, if you are his disciple, then he has appointed you to some low place, right? I mean, some low place this week. And so let me encourage you, 
uh, race him to that low place. Get there before he gets you there. Because here's what the scripture says. It says that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That means that every time we go to that low place, he comes and he lifts us up. Whatever, whatever grave we might go down into, he has the power to make it a garden. That's what these words mean. So receive them and then go in obedience to him, to love and to serve. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.